The questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. This interview is based on a true story that aims to reveal the great sinister plot behind every medication applied to every patient. We will expose the business-oriented medical and pharmaceutical business intending to generate huge profits rather than prioritizing cures for patients. The medical system has led to an ongoing mafia system throughout the Western world and has led to the few who get cured and the many who get destroyed by the legal medical system and some who even die from it, which is very much like how a mortgage system to property development works. The few at the top gain everything while the many at the bottom pay the price for it by taking the risks of being drugged and experimented with while being told it's the healthcare system. It's to show how far someone today must go to be cured and when more people need to demand cures than just accept the system of healthcare when they're the consumers of this system, keeping the majority of those in it employed. With an aging population now growing around the world, this industry has become the biggest industry in the world and has created a cancer in itself by profiting off sickness rather than curing it, which needs to become terminal cancer to the medical mafia to stop them causing forms of warfare on people's health, which they have gotten away with for decades and force them to cure, not treat symptoms. You are listening to Veritas. If this is your first time listening, welcome home. To listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, join the Veritas family and click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for Focus Life Force Energy. Get a 15-day free trial of FLFE today. We also have rebounders, pure organic sulfur, flash drives with all our Veritas and Sanitas seasons, and other great products. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. And now, here's your host, Mel Hasselrick. Eddie Powell is a geopolitical researcher, artist, pharmaceutical whistleblower, and survivor, global traveler, and truth seeker, with the goal of finding alternatives to mainstream politics and mainstream living. He says... If everyone keeps following the same systems of mainstream globalism, with the few getting richer and the many who keep getting poorer, the world becomes worse, and democracy fades away while communism grows. Like globalism, the world will become a much worse place for all while being run by the few, because the many know no other way to live than to follow the mainstream systems forevermore. He has authored many books, and the latest is titled medical mafia to modern marks his website is eddiepowellbooks.com and directly from outside cork city ireland i would like to welcome eddie powell hello eddie and welcome to veritas hey, how things the name of the book is medical mafia to modern marks so why don't you just explain why the connection between the medical mafia and Marx, and I presume you mean Marxism or communism, right? Marxism, yeah. <laughs> well, the medical system is a, is a communist system if you look deep into it, and then you get Marxism, which is globalism. So I know the medical system is the top of the pyramid around, with the World Health Organization, which are trying to create this global health system. So, 
they're all interlinked. Okay, so let's begin with your story. If I remember correctly from reading your book, you were born in 1980, correct? Uh, 1981, yeah. 81, in a very devout Catholic country, uh, Ireland, of course, we know that. Let's begin with when you first realized that you had some condition and in, in, in how it developed and how society did not help. And then in the mid-80s, of course, there was a recession. It really hit Ireland and the UK hard. And, and that almost became a depression, not only financially, but mental for the entire society. So I just want to set the stage. Yeah, this was kind of, um, this was back in the early 80s when I was born and I was, um, had a first seizure when I was about two years of age. Um, obviously, I don't remember that, but straight, right away I was put on medication and diagnosed that I had temporal lobe epilepsy. And um, you have to understand as well, there's no internet around back then. Technology wasn't advanced back then. There was nothing. There was just, you know, the church and... That was pretty much it. That was basically what ran the country back then. And we were facing a depression because of the recession that was hit. And kind of in the same situation we're in now on a global scale. But then um, after a while, like um, Britain started to take off and, you know, they were the monetary currency around the world. Then um, America took off after that. So, but during the depression of those years, like, um, it was mostly, basically the vulnerable were looked down at and they were seen as demonic, kind of like the devil, you know, the devil's kids. <laughs> that's the way the society was and that's the way the church demonized everyone who was had something wrong with them or if they weren't normal. Nobody was normal anyway. Everyone had some sort of condition. And that's the way the country kind of was ran. Now explain that because the Catholic Church at the time look down on people who had neurological conditions, right? Why is that? Well, if, you know, if you go back in history, like they used to think epilepsy was um, caused by the devil and, you know, they thought that it was caused by demons and demons were giving people these attacks. So I was even lived, I lived um, the first, I suppose, 15 to 20, nearly 20 years in that kind of a system where, that's the way we treated it. It didn't matter even if it was covered up. And even though I had normal friends and all that, it was still there. That stigma, you know, that's it's kind of like the the the, the homosexuals were kind of looked down at for so long. Same sort of a thing. And, you know, it's, I mean, in some ways, you know, you might think that's kind of a bit too far the other side, but that sort of a thing was still there, you know, in that Catholic one country at the time. And, and people... the funny thing is now, now, when you look now, like something like a mi- one million people, which is nearly twenty percent of the people here in Ireland, have some sort of a neurological condition. It's absolutely insane. One in five, almost. This is news to me. I mean, if you told me why is it that we have so much autism in the United States, I can more or less pinpoint based on the research some of the experts that I've interviewed have told me. But I did not know this about Ireland, the the neurological conditions that. Uh, that it's plaguing your country. Why do you think that is? Well, uh, it has to have something to do with, I suppose, among the multinationals we have here. We've we've got over a thousand multinationals here in this country, like, and there's not even two hundred thousand multinationals in the world. So, for a tiny population of five million and a thousand multinationals, like, they're kind of um, 
you're kind of really taking over capitalism here, you know, and I think that they definitely have something to do with, it, with their, whatever they're doing to the atmosphere. So you think this is the, the, the byproduct, and I'm reading here, almost 1,000 multinational companies have chosen Ireland as their strategic European base due to our pro-business environment and attractive taxation rates. Obviously, if industry is moving at, at such a pace, do you think it, this is the byproduct of their their industrial waste that's affecting you, the water, the air, etc.? I definitely think they have something to do with it because if you look at pollution, like what have they done to species around the world? So, I mean, they might, they might be bringing business here and they might be doing a lot of good for some people, but if you allow them to take over the country, you have to kind of question, well, are, are they really benefiting your country? Are they, are they still an asset or are they becoming a liability, you know? And then we have something called the HSE, which is the main health system here. And that's the biggest uh, employer here, which would employ like around 100,000. It's the biggest state employer, which would employ around 100,000 people. But if you look at the HSE, it's kind of like the NHS and same same thing in uh, Britain. Uh-huh. But if you look at the HSE or the NHS and you look who owns them, it's these massive pharmaceutical firms that actually own that system. They franchise it out to the governments. So like the likes of Pfizer, GlaxoSmithKline, all these massive global chains, they really own that. But of course, it's a public entity, you know, the health services executive and funded by the general taxation of society. But you're saying that it's mostly the pharmaceutical companies who run it? Yeah, they run it like through the colleges and they run all the research through it and they franchise, franchise it out to the government. I mean, and then you have these big massive fines that are just getting bigger and bigger every single year. Here now, for like five million people, they're running into around three to four hundred million almost every single year for a small population that's pretty huge and that's like medical negligence you know by the way i'm hearing some background noise i'm not sure what it is but just an fyi and and you say that the the neurological condition that you suffered it was made more difficult uh to live with it uh in the that part of the world because of society yeah, it was a stigma that it was like, um, it was an evil and there was demons that I was possessed by and all this kind of stuff. And the science wasn't there at the time when I was growing up with it, like an MRI scan wasn't available. Uh, EEG was barely available. There was absolutely nothing. There was nothing but really drugs. So I was really prescribed drugs throughout my whole life until I was around 35. So you feel like you, the, you were a guinea pig at one point? I wasn't. <laughs> The drugs pretty much caused the majority of my problems growing up, um, 95% of them. And even though I, I was telling, I, I woke up very early, like in my teens, that I knew something was, I knew it was the drugs they were doing, but the behavior problems were causing me to have these outbursts and temperamental episodes as if I was autistic, but I wasn't. I was just frustrated because of the torture I was getting from these drugs that was being put on. And uh, nobody was listening. So the church got the better of me there because I said, oh, he's demonized, Something, something's wrong with him. And I was telling the doctors and they weren't listening to me. But why were they not listening to me even when I was telling them? Because they get paid by the system, you know? Of course. And of course. Then you see, and then you see things like the opiate crisis and finally being exposed over there in the States with killing like 100,000 people a year. It's 
just insane. So this is a global thing. This, this is very much related to the opiate crisis, but and that is not just America; it's global. Of course, because this is the the single most profitable venture in the world to keep everyone sick. There's no there, there's no cures. Obviously, it's a practice, medical practice. They practice on individuals. It's 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 just the way it is. I mean, when I, when I see successful doctors all the time, I see oncologists, I want, really, I want to ask them. You know, I see all these people donating to the run for the cure or, or a cancer cure or, you know, marathons, give a dollar a mile or something along those lines. But really, if you asked a doctor who has a lavish lifestyle, what would you do if tomorrow the there was a cancer cure and you're your business would become irrelevant. Obviously, they don't want to hear that. And this is in the United States where it's, you know, we have the private medical industry. But in places like, like Ireland or, or the UK and, you know, most of Europe, which is all socialized, Canada, uh, Australia, as you say, it, it's, it's Marxism, it's communism. But you said you were treated as if you were a second or third class citizen, especially in high school. And I don't... I don't need to bring all these things that may trigger you again, but it's it's important for the story. But they used to call you Electric Eddie, correct? Well, yeah, um, yeah, I was treated pretty bad there, but I mean, I was well able to defend myself at the same time, so it was no, I wasn't any pushover. Like I was always fighting back against that, but it just shows like the cruelty that um, was um, able to happen in schools back then. You never get away with anything like that, no. <laughs> Nothing near it, <laughs> you know. Um, and yeah, I ended up, um, I ended up leaving the system. Actually, the education system. In the end, I just went out and learned how to make money myself. I was just, I didn't see anything. I didn't see myself learning anything in there, especially having a condition. And then, uh, how, what, what, what benefit is this going to be to me in the long run if I'm going to still have this, <laughs> you know? You, I said I'm, I'm already I'm I'm already living in the real world already, so I may, I may as well just go and work in it. You wanted dignity before sympathy. Pretty much, uh, dignity. Dignity was the main thing. I wasn't. I was never looking for sympathy. That's that's only going to drag you down even more. How many years did you go undiagnosed? Because, uh, as you said, epilepsy wasn't really labeled correctly until years later. Correct. Well, it was all by. Um, it was actually by mistake. I got I got diagnosed with the type I had. Um, there was a time where I used to go around um, making money in my teens and used to wash cars and windows and do all those things for people. And uh, it's pretty big actually. I, I, and I made a lot of money doing it. But there was one time I phoned up a local priest and asked him did he want anything done that weekend. He said no, but he was um, having a meeting about going to a place called Medjugorje. And uh, then he said, call, can he, he, then he kind of stalled and he said, I'll call you back actually in about 20 minutes. He called me back and he asked me, did I want to go there? Well, hold on, hold on. Let, let, let's not go to the Medjugorje in Bosnia until later, because a lot of things happened before that. You're, you're getting really ahead of me. I misstated. I didn't mean to say that epilepsy was discovered recently. It's, it's been around forever. And it was in the 1960s, I believe, when they started using anticonvulsing medication to treat it. But in your case, yeah. they hadn't properly diagnosed you. So from the moment you were a small child, 
till what age were they trying to find out what you had until they said, yes, he is epileptic? Well, they diagnosed me with it when I was about four, but they didn't have a type that I had. They knew there was so many different types, but they didn't know what type I was. But um, so I was, I was just really seen as someone with epilepsy, but they didn't know what type it was. Yeah, like the type I had wasn't really, they knew it was something to do with temporal law, but that was it. Like they didn't like, know exactly what type it was. Or it wasn't treat. It wasn't really treatable at the time. The only thing they could really do was um, just give me medication after medication, and uh, they were doing probably more harm than good. Really, if anything, I shouldn't have been on half of the things I was put on throughout my um, childhood. How early in life? How young were you when you were started no. the prescription medication? Um, well, it wouldn't have been medication when I started. It would have been like. Um, uh, spoonfuls of stuff, which I was only about two years of age. Two years of age. Okay. Yeah. And how did it progress? Because you eventually developed some kidney failure, but that didn't come until later, correct? That came from a virus that I caught um, called prelumbritis when I was detoxing from all the drugs, which took me about like nearly five years to do in total. And... um I didn't actually. I didn't actually know I was sick. I knew there was something wrong with me. I thought like I had to go away, kind of thing, you know. There was no, there was no warnings there of a kidney failure or anything like that. But um, I woke up one day in the hospital and they told me kidney failure and we need um, a new kidney. And you go on the transplant list. And they said no, I want one. Whatever, it's time to go. It's time to go. And they were able to reverse it with the antibiotic and a few dialysis treatments, and I totally recovered. But they said it was um, the medications that I was taking for so long that I was on so many of them that caused that virus to trigger off. You say that in Ireland, one in 110 people have epilepsy. How does that compare to the United States? Um, I think it's something like, is it 60 million altogether around the world? Something like that. It's pretty high enough. But uh, yeah, America is pretty big as well. Uh, lots of people in America have it. And the thing is, like, there are some things now. I mean, technologies came a long way, and there are some 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 parts which can be um, cured. Like you can, you know, you could have a tumor, you could have from a tumor, or the tumor could be taken out, and then it goes away with the tumor, that kind of thing. And um, then there's a lot of a lot of people, elderly people, who are are only beginning to get it. Uh, that's, that's another thing that's starting to happen. People have to figure out why people are getting when they're older rather than they're younger. You said you related to people who had to emigrate to other developed countries because of war or to have a better life. You felt the same in your own country. How so? Yeah, because that's the way the, the stigma is. When there's a stigma against you, you kind of know where you don't belong and where you, you know. How, how people left the country and probably never wanted to even come back because of the way society looked down at them. I mean, that's just the way it was back then. People were always looking down at one another. Nobody was ever perfect and everyone had something wrong with them. So and they all wanted to try and become perfect. And why, I don't know. <laughs> but that's just, a, it's kind of like a poisonous, toxic. Again, I think that's Marxism again, toxic Marxism. So the people who are at war, you know, war 
touring country, uh, people who are experiencing a lot of COVID. Thank you for listening. To unlock the full two-hour interview, including video formats, downloads, transcripts, exclusive articles, and more, subscribe to Veritas Plus now. Gain access to our entire archive dating back to 2008. Just click subscribe at veritasradio.com. Because you don't want to believe, you want to know. Subscribe now. To listen to the rest and all of our exclusive material, proceed to the Veritas Plus member section or join the Veritas Plus family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for focused life force energy. Get a 15-day free trial today with no credit card required. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button on our website at veritasradio.com. Now, proceed to the Veritas Plus member section or subscribe to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it. Because you don't want to believe, you want to know. What are you waiting for? Subscribe now at veritasradio.com.